Let us turn now, friends, as the Lord would help us, <clears throat> to the portion we read, 1 Timothy chapter 6. <clears throat> and we can uh, read again from verse 13. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou should keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his time he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, King of kings, Lord of lords who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power and everlasting. Amen. And especially the words of verse 15. <clears throat> Yesterday, the world witnessed the rare event of a British king being crowned. And we have to say that the ceremony was hugely impressive in its display of royal protocol. And we are thankful for the Christian content in the um, important part of that ceremony. We're also thankful that King Charles does not consider himself to be the king of kings. Other monarchs have done. On two occasions, we're told in the Bible about men who thought they were king of kings. In fact, that's where this phrase is used, first of all, in the book of Ezra and again in the book of Daniel. Now, yesterday's coronation was witnessed by millions of people, literally millions of people throughout the world. But you know, friends, next week will no longer be news. The world will move on to whatsoever else they deem to be of interest to them. Now, sadly, uh, world history is rather stained by cruel monarchs and dictators and rulers and politicians. Now, it's no surprise to discover that information in the unsophisticated world of antiquity, if I can put it that way. However, our modern sophisticated world, with all its technological know-how, with all his well-educated people, we're also blighted by dictators, but dictators of a different kind. Only now they are the bosses of Google and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the rest of these platforms. And I say that because these people wield far more power and influence than King Charles could ever dream about. But against all of that, our interest as Christians must be focused 
on the only one, the only one, and you'll notice how this is stressed in our verse, the only one who deserves to be called king of kings. Three times the New Testament scriptures append this title to the Lord Jesus. Here in 1 Timothy 6, then in Revelation 17, and again in Revelation 19. So there are monarchs, and there's the monarch. There are kings, and there's the king. And that monarch, that king, our Lord Jesus Christ, is without peer and without equal. And he rules supreme in time as he does in eternity. Now, as we saw yesterday, human monarchs are crowned with great panache and great pomp and great ceremony. Whereas, when Jesus Christ left this world, the last thing he resembled was a king. The last thing he resembled was a king. Crucified in weakness, every friend having deserted him, his enemies victorious over him, or seemed to have been. Not a trumpet sounded, not a song was sung, and not a sound heard even from heaven itself. Yet we know there never was and never will be a coronation like his, the true king of kings. Well, I want to look at two or three things in connection with this text. I want to look, first of all, at the context of the text to get a, a flavor of what Paul is teaching Timothy and ourselves. And then we will look at each of the titles in turn, the potentate, the king, and the Lord. Now, events in Paul's life after the historical record of Acts closed is rather diff difficult to trace and uh, Acts ends in a bit of an anticlimax, I think. But commentators agree that this particular letter, the first letter to Timothy, must have been written round about 61 or 62 AD. And young Timothy had become something of a protege for Paul. He was a dedicated follower of the apostle, a young missionary of mixed parentage. His mother was a Jewish of Jewish stock, and his father was a Gentile. And Paul was keen to teach him well, because he knew that a, a man of, of mixed parentage would face peculiar difficulties as a missionary for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he urged upon him as much solid teaching as he possibly could. And he knew for Timothy to survive in a hostile world, he would need to have a good, solid spiritual foundation and a good, clear, concise moral barometer. And I think that is a point that every parent, and perhaps even grandparents or guardians, should take on board for their own young children, young people growing up. This is perhaps more essential today than ever before 
that our young people go out into the world standing on a solid spiritual foundation and knowing clearly what their moral parameters are in life. So <laughs> referring, <coughs> excuse me, referring to the prevailing sinful situations of our own day, of, of that day, Paul urged Timothy, in verse 11, Thou, O man of God, flee these things, alluding to the sinful situations around them, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. But that wasn't enough. It wasn't for Timothy. It's not for you children. It's not for us adults. Paul added, verse 12, fight the good fight, the good fight of faith. You know, what we have, my friends, in Jesus Christ is worth fighting for. We must never, ever surrender what the Lord Jesus Christ has gifted to us, bestowed upon us. We must never Ever, regardless of what peer pressure has brought to bear upon us, we must never surrender what belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, Paul was determined that he would instruct this young missionary as well as he could. He had something worth fighting for, and so have we. And the reason that's important, my friends, is because God's enemies then and now are determined to take that away from us, perhaps more determined today than ever before. Now, Paul gave Timothy here, and he's giving yourselves the best example possible of stalwart faithfulness. Look at verse 13. Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. Our Lord's whole life was spent, the time he was on this earth, fighting the good fight, demonstrating to all and sundry a faultless witness in the process of that fighting. And furthermore, he received precious little help in doing so. Certainly not from those that God entrusted with the role of leadership in the culture to which he belonged. In fact, those who were in positions of leadership turned out to be his greatest enemies. They opposed his entire ministry to the bitter end. And we know from the record we have that they brought him before the highest court in their land, amongst Gentiles first and then amongst the Jews themselves. And there they did something very deliberate, very focused. They rejected his royal status. They did this in a very peculiar and specific and telling way. And this shows you how much the world hates God and hates Christ. In rejecting Jesus Christ as their king and ruler, they preferred a madman. They chose a madman over Jesus Christ, a man who spent every second of his life going about doing good. In John 19, we hear, we have no king but Caesar. 
Caesar, the madman. We will not have this man to rule over us. And that, my friends, is what the world is still saying about the Lord Jesus Christ. So when they nailed him to that cross in mocking tones, they wrote in that placard in three languages, in case anybody missed it, this is the king of the Jews, as if to say so much for his claims. But he was the king of the Jews. Even in the humiliation of crucifixion, he was the king of the Jews. Even as they branded him a criminal, he was the king of the Jews. Even in the helplessness of death, he was the king of the Jews. The strange thing is that the man who wrote this letter to Timothy was worse than any of them. He considered himself to be so much of an enemy of God, he described himself to this very man, Timothy. I was the chief of sinners. I was worse than any of them. And yet, when King Jesus confronted him on his way to Damascus to persecute more of God's people, he cried out from the dust into which he fell, acknowledging the royal status of the king of kings. What will thou have me to do? Suddenly the great enemy of God was on his face before the king of kings. What will thou have me to do? As if he was seeing him sitting regal and throned on the, crown, on the throne of heaven, crowned as the king of kings. He saw the exalted Christ, the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And as Jesus said to Peter in another context, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Paul, but my Father, which is in heaven. In other words, God revealed to Paul, or Saul of Tarsus as he was then, the true identity, the full identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, here's the challenge to yourself here this morning. Have you reached that stage in your life where you are able to see more and beyond the historical narrative of the Bible regarding Jesus of Nazareth, more and beyond the Jesus your mother and your father taught you about, that you heard from your home environment or coming to church, are you able to see above and beyond all of that to see this Jesus of Nazareth enthroned on the throne of heaven, Lord of Lords? the King of kings, the blessed and only potentate. Take care, my friends, not to hold religious interest and conviction in less than with profound importance in your life. 
profound importance. And if you don't seek diligently to make sure that Jesus Christ is your potented King and Lord, I'll tell you this, someone else will fill that role in your life. And that outcome should fill you with horror. Or the consequences of it should fill you with horror. Well, let me move on to look at these titles given to Jesus. Look at each one in turn. The blessed and only potentate. Now, this is a rather unusual word. Um, We don't use it every day. In fact, we never use it apart from when we read this particular chapter of the Scriptures. But the root the word is derived from is not unusual because it comes from a word that means power. But it's not just any power. Everything to do with God reeks of power. Divine power was one of the first things, if not the first thing, that was established regarding the character of God. When we read of the creation narrative at the beginning of our Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. That took power, my friends. That took enormous power. That took unlimited power, what we call omnipotence. And we know that All three persons of the glorious Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they all possess this power. Yet, incredible as it sounds, there was, and I speak here with reverence, and I speak here from the position of a sinner looking up at God in all his power, there was something wrong with that omnipotence. Something wrong with that power that created the world and the universe. It certainly created the universe with all its complexity and all its amazing inhabitants. And it did so in six by 24 hour days. And all of that brought about by that simple command. Let there be. And there was. However. Despite what that power was and is capable of, it couldn't save one solitary soul. Couldn't save a single soul. Isn't that amazing? The power that created the universe couldn't and cannot cleanse your conscience of guilt. Isn't that thought-provoking, to say the least? Now, I think, my friends, I should challenge our understanding of who and what God is. And it should challenge our understanding on who and what the gospel is. Now, speaking with all due reverence and respect, God cannot, even God, cannot save one sinner through power alone. And that's why Jesus is given this title, the blessed and only potentate. You see, this gives Jesus power, but within a certain framework. Power within a certain framework. 
You see, the word means certainly power uh, in a physical sense, intellectual sense, spiritual sense, moral sense, ethical sense, all of that. But others possess power in that regard. If we look at David in his best days, he had that kind of power. But you want to notice how the text, if you like, restricts the concept in a peculiar way. The blessed and only potentate. This is power that is blessed in a special saving manner. That gives Jesus power, but within a certain framework. Within a certain framework. And he is the only person, the only person. God the Father doesn't possess this. God the Holy Spirit doesn't possess this. There is only one who is the blessed and only potentate. So it is presenting to us saving power enveloped in God's blessing, wrapped in God's love and mercy and grace. The blessed and only potentate. And notice what else Paul tells Timothy about this. Which in his times he shall show. This is a bit of a clumsy kind of a translation. Let me put it another way. This will be demonstrated at the proper time. In other words, a day will come in the experience of a multitude of people when they will see, when they will know, when they will experience this awesome saving power of God's potentate as he takes them from death unto life. And many of you present here this morning have already experienced that yourselves. You see, the potentate is the only one who possesses the power to forgive your sins, the power to save your soul, the power to preserve you all the way to glory. Nobody else can do that. The Lord Jesus Christ, the only potentate. Someone once asked Jesus, Recorded in Luke chapter 5. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They were right to a certain extent. But what they didn't understand was how that was possible even for God. Here's the answer. Jesus earned the power and the authority to do so. And that's why we read about him in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. He was declared to be the Son of God with power, with this power, this bestowed power, the power he earned through his suffering and his death and his obedience. And in the hands of this great and blessed potentate, there isn't a sin, my friends, in human experience beyond the power and authority of Jesus Christ to forgive. Not a sin. There's no degree of backsliding in the believer's experience beyond the power and authority of Jesus Christ to recover. 
What an encouragement that is. As he said to his father in that great prayer in John 17, of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Why not? Because of this power. That's why. Blessed and only potented. Let me move at the second title, the King of Kings. Now, this title has a dual application in the sense that every monarch, every prince, every ruler, every president, every prime minister is under the authority of the King of Kings, whether they believe that or not, whether they understand that or not, doesn't matter. Proverbs 8, verse 15 tell us, by me. By this very man, by me, kings reign and princes decree justice. Romans 13, 1, the powers that be, monarchs, prime ministers, so on, the powers that be, they are ordained of God. They are under his authority, whether they like it or not. And that, by the way, is why we as citizens must respect our monarch and respect King Charles. But our greater respect... And our greatest reverence and our greatest fear must be for the King of Kings. And there's something important to do with this in connection, especially with the coronation yesterday. Any time a clash arises between loyalty to King Charles and loyalty to King Jesus, Believers must always nail our colors to the mast of heaven. Always nail our colors to the mast of heaven. We must pray for King Charles, of course we must. And we must also challenge him if he is in breach of the vows he undertook yesterday. And furthermore, the Christian church must constantly remind him, as Knox reminded Queen Mary, the monarch is a mere subject under the reign and authority of King Jesus. He is the one kings and commoners owe first allegiance to. And at this level, King Charles and Ian Smith are all the same. However, all these three titles have a special reference to believers. So to have Jesus Christ as our Savior is to have him as king. That is, ruling supreme over our lives. So that in his presence, we must always bow. King Charles will never know most of us personally. Never. Whereas, King Jesus knows every single one of his own people. I know my sheep, he says to us in John chapter 10, and my sheep know me. King Charles can do little for believers. King Jesus can't do enough for us. He cannot do enough for us. Listen to this. This is how catechism defines the role of King Jesus, or Jesus in the role as king. It's in its answer, the short catechism answer to question 26. He subdues us to himself. In other words, he makes us willing 
in a day of his power to obey him and to love him and to walk with him. He subdues us to himself. He rules us, but he also defends us. He restrains us and he restrains and conquers all his and all our enemies. Jesus Christ can't do enough for us. But he does far more than that for us. If you are a believer here this morning, I wouldn't even know how to measure the blessings and privileges that belong to you under the supreme role of the King of Kings. Not only does he make us citizens of his earthly and heavenly kingdoms, he also makes us heirs of God and all that God is. We're taught in Romans chapter 8 that believers are heirs of God and joined heirs with Christ. Now listen to this staggering truth. This is what awaits you if you're a believer here this morning. This is what awaits you when you pass from this life into the great eternity. When you leave earth and enter into heaven, this is what awaits you. This is in Revelation chapter 3. I will grant to sit, this is talking to a believer, I will grant you to sit with me in my throne. Mull over that. Meditate over that. I will grant to sit with me in my throne. Can you believe her? This Sabbath morning, can you imagine yourself sharing the throne of Jesus Christ in glory? Oh, it's hard. Oh, it's difficult. But that's what the word says. That's what he has promised us. Promises that cannot be broken. Promises he sealed to us with his own blood. They're yea and amen in Christ Jesus. Oh yes. He does infinitely more for us than King Charles can ever do. Let me come to the third part of the title. Lord of Lords. Now remember this is a golden chain of eternal truth because anyone believing that Jesus Christ is their blessed and only potentate, that in turn means that he must be also our king of kings. And if we believe that he is our great and blessed potentate and also our king of kings, he must also become our lord of lords. It's a golden chain of biblical truth. Now, you'll notice that each title has its own meaning. But here's the ultimate title that God bestowed upon Jesus in his resurrection. Now, as many of you know, there's powerful teaching on this in Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 2. And he speaks of God in this way. This is what God the Father did for God the Son when he raised him from the dead. 
He highly exalted him. Highly exalted him. In other words, raising him, crowning him, enthroning him on the throne of heaven itself. There he is. Now, as we are gathered here this morning, we are at the footstool of the King of Kings, ruling supreme on the throne of glory. But he did more than that. He did more than that. He gave him a name which is above every name. A name which is above every name. And here's what's relevant to that great name, that most awesome of names. Every knee will bow to it. Every knee. It's a comprehensive statement. Every knee will bow of things in heaven. That's no surprise. Of things on earth. That's a blessing. Of things under the earth. Doesn't qualify it. Doesn't say most of those who are on earth. Most of those who are under the earth. No. Everyone in heaven. Everyone on earth. Everyone under the earth. And every tongue will confess. It's a picture of Total, absolute subjection amongst humanity. It's utterly comprehensive in its scope. God's friends, God's enemies. But who are they bowing to? And what are they confessing? Well, they're bowing to this and they're confessing this, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Now that's the name that's above every name. Not Jesus, not Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. The name that is above every name. And because of that, my friends, we should rejoice. We should rejoice. Now you may very well ask, how can that be? How are God's enemies going to bow the knee to him? How are God's enemies going to confess that Jesus is Lord? Because, my friends, on that day, all of humanity will be transformed. All of humanity will be transformed. Gone forever. Every heart of unbelief. Gone forever. Every refuge of lies will be torn down. Every instance of hypocrisy will lie in the grave. Every atheistic thought will melt away. Only the heart of faith will stand up to the scrutiny of the judge of the quick and the dead. And furthermore, that heart of faith, and remember this, my friends, that heart of faith requires faith only the size of a mustard seed to make Jesus Christ its only potentate King, Lord of Lords. Now, as I bring this sermon to a close, where does all that leave you, sir? 
Where does all that leave you, sir? Have you yet to bow the knee to this glorious potentate, this glorious king, this glorious Lord? Have you yet to bow to him? Has your tongue confessed? Yes, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my king. Jesus is my potentate. Have you done it willingly? Have you done it gladly? Or will your case be that you will bow and confess through gnashing of your teeth? Because sadly, my friends, that's how it will be for some people. That's how it will be for those who are rejecting Jesus Christ, who are echoing the sentiments of 2,000 years ago, we will not have this man to rule over us. How gracious of God to be urging us here this morning through the gospel. How gracious of God to enable us, to help us, to trust in Jesus, to bow the knee, to confess with the tongue that he is indeed our blessed and only potentate, our King of kings, our Lord of lords. Then if we have done so, we too can respond to Paul's exhortation to Timothy. O oh, man of God, flee these things. Follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight. They hold on eternal life. My friends, make sure that you are a soldier on the spiritual battlefield. Make sure that this is the desire, the craving of your heart and soul, that you want hold of God's free gift, eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, blessed God, we thank thee that there is one ruling over us, ruling supreme in heaven, on earth, in the church, over our lives. And we thank thee for the grace that enables us to accept him for who he is, and that we are able and enabled to bow the knee, to confess with the tongue that he is indeed Lord of lords, King of kings. Bless us, have mercy upon us, and help those who are desirous of having this as a reality in their own lives, and grant that thy name would be glorified, that Christ would be magnified in the lives of each one of us. Continue with us now into the day, for his name's sake, amen.